The book of Micah is a series of three sermons. Each message begins with the word hear. Micah chapter 1 verse 2. Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth. Chapter 3 verse 1. Hear now, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. And then chapter 6 verse 1 begins, hear now what the Lord says. Micah has a message for God's people, but are they listening? Once a man was driving down the highway when he saw a real live Indian lying in the middle of the road. This Indian was on his face. He had his ear stuck to the pavement. The man thought this was strange, and so he stopped to investigate. And he heard the Indian mumbling, large wheels, wide tires, Ford truck, color green, large dog sitting next to driver, Alabama license plate, traveling at least 80 miles per hour. The man was astonished. He said, you can tell that just by listening with your ear to the ground. That's when the Indian replied, not hardly, that's the truck that just ran over me. Micah has his ear to the ground, or better yet, his ear to the heavens. He had faithfully listened to God and was now proclaiming God's warnings. But like this Indian, whether the people listened to Micah or not, it was obvious that God's warnings were real. For the entire region had been steamrolled by a truck. The Assyrian army was on the warpath. Assyria began her conquest of the Fertile Crescent in the year 745 B.C. And for the next 100 years, every king east of the Euphrates River would live in mortal fear of these Assyrians. In 732, by 732, much of the land bridge linking Asia to Africa was under Assyria's control. Philistia had fallen. Damascus had been conquered. And now the two Hebrew capitals were next, Samaria and Jerusalem. And God warned his people, turn from your sin or suffer my judgment. The middle of the 8th century B.C. saw a flurry of prophets. Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah all trumpeted God's warnings. For 200 years, God had tolerated Israel's idolatry, but now his patience had finally expired. Judgment would come on both kingdoms unless the people repented. You see, the prophets had heard from God, but would the people hear the prophets? The book of Micah begins, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah speaks to both Hebrew nations, the northern kingdom of Israel in its capital of Samaria, as well as Judah and Jerusalem in the south. In essence, he lays these capital cities on God's gurney, and he takes a spiritual CAT scan. He x-rays their heart to see what they lack in their devotion to God. Two important points about Micah. First, Like Amos, Micah was all country. Micah was from Moresheth. That's what I imagine he looked like right there. He was from a farming community about 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem. He was a hick from the sticks. And yet God sent him to the big city 
to confront kings and to confront priests. Micah had an uncommon courage. And the second point, the meaning of the name Micah is also his message. The Hebrew word translated Micah means, who is like Yahweh? And this is the issue that preoccupies the prophet. Micah's intention in this book is to elaborate on God's character. God has no peer. The fierceness of his wrath and the lavishness of his love are without comparison. Who is like him? Well, Micah says, no one is like our Lord. Micah begins with a bang. Notice in verse 3, God descends from heaven. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. Now here's the first truth that you need to learn about God. He doesn't always stay in his place. He doesn't. God is not always sociable or proper or mannered. You see, if you serve an idol, you can clear off a space on the shelf or the mantle and you can put that idol on display and it will never move. That idol will stay right in the place where you put it. Or you can keep your idol in your garage. Or you can wear it on your finger. Or you can deposit it in the bank. You see, you can live life around your idol. A good idol knows its place. It doesn't butt in. It stays silent. It doesn't interfere. But not the true God. God is the ultimate party crasher. You see, God is the guy you keep from your friend since you're not sure what he'll do or say. If you please him, he'll say so. If you displease him, he'll let you know. There's one certainty. God won't be ignored. He refuses to be left out. You never know when he's going to rock the boat or upset the cart. You see, God could care less about being politically correct. He has no respect for your status quo. Micah sees the Lord coming out of his place. He's not content to hide in the heavens and rule from a comfortable distance. God is always diving in and getting involved and intervening. Intervening. He is a hands-on God. This is what Christmas is all about, by the way. Barring from the words of Micah, Christmas is God coming out of his place. Why? Why? To stand in our place. God left his heavenly throne for the womb of a virgin. John 1 verse 14 puts it. The word was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Indeed he did. God saw our pain and plight. And so he came out of his place to be our savior. Yet Micah also sees God coming out of his place to judge our sin. And as he does, nature bows before him. In Micah 3 Chapter 1, verse 3, Micah sees mountains melt and valleys split and waters pour when God comes out of his place. At the second coming of Jesus, when he returns to this earth, he'll punish the wicked. And, And indeed, again, cataclysmic events will occur. John saw future events and he wrote, Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. When God comes out of his place, anything goes. 
The earth convulses. Mountains vanish. The universe buckles. Who is like our God? No one. God has no rivals or equals. Verse 5 tells us why God is coming out of His place. It's the same reason Jesus will come to earth in the last days. Micah explains, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? God comes to punish sin. And he intends to judge the capital cities of both nations. You see, Samaria was a microcosm of Israel. And Jerusalem was Judah in a nutshell. These capital cities had undue influence on the surrounding villages. This is how it works today, in fact. Certain cities set trends for the rest of the country. L.A. style, New York fashion set the pace for America's heartland. This is why God judges the cultural sinners, because of their influence. Notice verse 7, he says, he notes the sin of Samaria. He says, her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot. You see, Samaria's sin was idolatry, spiritual infidelity. Samaria had been God's unfaithful lover. She had given her attention and her affections to idols. Verse 9 indicts Jerusalem for the same sins. He says, For Israel's wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The sin of the north had spread to the south. Israel's idolatry had infected even Judah. And because of unfaithfulness, God had come out of his place. But in the middle of these two judgments, notice Micah's attitude. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Does Micah stand by passively? Is there a smirk on his face as if they got what they deserve? Is there an I told you so on Micah's tongue? The answer is absolutely not. Micah cries out in verse 8. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Rather than take some perverse joy in God's judgment, Micah is anguished and distressed. In his commentary on Micah, Walter Kaiser, he writes this, Micah is not a dispassionate observer, steeled against the terrors he predicts. Instead, he is so torn apart by the grief that was to come that he wails like a banshee and howls like a jackal as he goes about naked in deep despair. In the ancient world, when times got tough, the prophet appeared in the buff. I'm glad this no longer applies. Nakedness was a sign of grief. God had revealed to Micah the bare facts about the nation, the naked truth. His people had sinned, and Micah was torn. He walked naked among the people as an expression of his agony and grief. In essence, Micah was a microcosm of God's heart. A microcosm, you could call it. God is never pleased to punish. It grieves Him deeply when we sin. God would rather forgive and bless. 
God agonizes for His people as Micah mourns. Now the rest of chapter 1 predicts God's judgment on 12 cities. Most of the dirty dozen were within about 10 miles of Micah's hometown of Marasheth. One detail to note, Micah was a country boy, but he was a very talented writer. He was graphic. Micah could spin a phrase. He was sort of a biblical Louis Grizzard. Here to make his point, he uses a few play on words. In verse 10, gath means announce. So Micah is saying, announce it not in announce. Beth Afra means house of dust. In essence, he says, those who live in the house of dust will be rolled in the dust. In verse 11, Zanon means go out. He's saying the residents of go out will have to stay in. Now, Micah inspired me this week. So I came up with some current examples here. If I were Micah and God called me to warn the surrounding cities, I could say, I could say, a gust of wind will level Augusta. All is not well in Roswell. Beware of sins in Athens. Judgment will head to Buckhead. Lilburn better turn or burn. Norcross needs the cross. Swanee will sing its swan song. Duluth has rejected the truth. Monroe has got to go. Snellville ain't far from Hellsville. And of course, Stone Mountain has taken God for granted. You get the point here. Micah uses puns to forecast God's punishment. Who is like our God? He doesn't take sin lying down. He comes out of his place to execute judgment when man's actions need to be punished. In chapter 2, the cat scan continues. Micah's x-rays turn up more sin. People steal each other's land. They tell God's prophets to shut up. They lack compassion on the poor. Landlords kick widows out in the street. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, Micah says, The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. Nothing is more heartless than putting someone on the street who doesn't have the means to provide for himself. This is what the people of God were doing to each other. You know, I read across an interesting article out of Austin, Texas. The newspaper read, Landlord John Mattingly, 26, in October, served an eviction notice on his grandmother, Dorothy Webb, 85, for non-payment of rent. In court, she commented, I guess I'm just not dying fast enough for him. Now, how low can you go? I mean, how can anybody evict their own little old grandmother? But this sounds like the greedy landlords in Micah's day. Since they were so quick to put the poor out on the street, God says he will evict these nations from the land he's promised them. Eventually, Samaria was sacked by Assyria in 722 B.C. Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians in 586. God was true to his word. And yet, even though the Hebrew kingdoms will fall, verse 12 predicts that God will reassemble them in the future. 
As a shepherd, he will gather up his lost sheep. And I love the name that God gives for himself in chapter 2, verse 13. Notice this. He calls himself the one who breaks open. I like that. Put God in a box. Put limits on God. Try to restrict God. Try to tell God what he can or can't do. And watch him break out of that box. Perhaps you feel boxed in today. Maybe by circumstances. Maybe by poor choices. Here's the good news. The one who breaks open lives in you. And Jesus can shatter chains. And he can set us free. And he can break us out of our box. And he can reassemble our lives. Well, Micah chapter 3 is a message to the corrupt rulers of Judah and Israel. You know, God's greatest judgment on a nation can be to turn it over to ungodly leaders. And verse 2 addresses folks who hate good and love evil. The rulers of Micah's day had abused their power and they were taking advantage of people. And I think it's important that all our elected leaders realize that they not only have to answer to their constituents, but ultimately they are accountable to God. One day they'll all have to attend the great tea party in the sky. The end of chapter 3 describes the depth of corruption in high places. Judges and priests were on the take. In court, you could buy a verdict. Judges solicited bribes. In church, you could pay for a sermon that would tickle your ears. The priests favored the big givers. The leaders of the land had sold out justice and truth for money. It reminds me of the man who had stuffed money in his mattress for many, many years. $300,000, as a matter of fact. And just before he died, he called his doctor and his senator and his pastor all to his bedside, and he told them, he said, hey, they say you can't take it with you, but I'm going to try. He handed each man an envelope with $100,000 cash. And he told him, he said, just before they close the coffin on my casket, I want you to throw in this envelope. I trust you guys. Well, at the funeral, all men, all three men, they tossed in an envelope. But after the funeral, a few confessions were in order. The doctor said, he said, man, I needed the money for some hospital equipment, and so I kept the cash, and I, I just threw in an empty envelope. The politician, he confessed, I, I paid off a few campaign debts. I also threw in an empty envelope. The pastor, he, he scolded them. He said, gentlemen, I, I'm ashamed of you all. I tossed in the whole amount, wrote the man a personal check for $100,000. Well, verse 12 makes it clear that because of corruption in high places, Jerusalem and its temple will be plowed under and become ruins. This prophecy was fulfilled twice in the history of Jerusalem. In Micah's three sermons, he develops a pattern. He starts the sermon with a condemnation of sin, but he ends with an affirmation of God's love. I'll never forget one night, Nick was just a tot, and I had to spank him. And just as I was pulling off my belt, my little guy, he looks up at me with those little doggy eyes and he says to me, Daddy, after you spank me, will you give me a big hug? <laughs> well, what happens in next is it, what happened to Nick that night is what happens in Micah's sermons. In chapter 3, the people get spanked. Now in chapter 4, they get a big hug. 
Micah looks to the distant future and he foresees the kingdom age when Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. And verse 1 tells us, The Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and peoples will flow into it. People will come to Jerusalem from all over the world. They'll come up to the temple to be taught by Jesus, God's word and God's ways. What a day that'll be. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus will judge the nations, that he'll end war and he'll author peace. He'll beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. At the end of verse 3, he makes an incredible promise. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In that day, Jesus will have compassion on the afflicted, on the lame, on the outcast. The Lord will be a strong tower to the weak and disadvantaged. That means today, we need to reveal His kingdom by caring for people in similar ways. Now Micah 4, verses 9 through 13, compresses thousands of years. In fact, it meshes history with prophecy. Judah is compared to a woman in labor. Her pain intensifies. At last, verse 10 says, To Babylon you shall go. And it happened in 605 B.C. And yet God also promises to bring Judah back and to bless his people. She's told the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Verse 13 actually jumps to the end of time and speaks of Israel's ultimate victories. And this is where the prophecy of Micah turns amazing. He's pondering Israel's plight over generations now. Her ups and downs throughout history. You know, Hebrew Hebrew history was like a yo-yo. Up and down. Blessed and judged. At times, it hesitates. Like a yo-yo, Israel seems to stay down, but then suddenly they pop back up. Micah thinks of what it will take to keep them on top forever. And his mind focuses on the answer, the Savior, an ultimate ruler. And in chapter 5, verse 2, Micah predicts, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Micah lived 730 years before the birth of Jesus, yet here he foresees the Savior, and he predicts the place of his birth. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, they ask the location of where the Messiah would be born. And the priests searched, and they scoured the Scriptures, and they found this verse, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here is definitive proof of Jesus' messianic claims Seven centuries in advance, God pinpointed the exact coordinates to Messiah's birthplace. Bethlehem Ephrathah was the equivalent of Atlanta, Georgia. Bethlehem was the city. Ephrathah was the larger region or district. And Micah is amazed that such a small and insignificant city would be chosen by God to host Messiah's birth. Here's why every Christmas we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. As cities go, it was little among thousands, Micah says. Bethlehem was far from the seats of power. God chose humble beginnings for the child who was to be the one to be ruler in Israel. And yet the location of his birth was not the most impressive part of Micah's prophecy. 
What boggles the mind is that his birth was not his beginning. He says of Jesus, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This word translated everlasting means from eternity on. It speaks of an immeasurable duration. Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. Go back in time, as far as your mind will allow. 5,000 years, 50,000 years, 500,000 years, 5 billion years, 50 trillion quintillion years. Try to stretch it. Go back as far as you can think. And there was Jesus. Someone translated this term everlasting as beyond the vanishing point. When time fades into eternity, there is Jesus. And the implications here are provocative. This means the eternal God and the babe of Bethlehem are one and the same. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, first and last. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. Jesus is God. And the rest of chapter 5 depicts Jesus shepherding his people. He feeds his flock, and he stands in God's strength. Verse 5 speaks of Jesus. He shall be great to the end of the earth, and this one shall be peace. In Micah chapter 5, Micah uses the frequent tactic of many of the Old Testament prophets. He jumps quickly from Messiah's first coming to his second coming in the same set of verses. In fact, in verse 2, he's born in Bethlehem. In verse 6, we find him defeating the invading Antichrist or the Assyrian, as as Micah calls him, an event that occurs at the end of the age. Chapter 6 takes us into God's courtroom. And verse 2 trumpets words you never want to hear. The Lord has a complaint against his people. After all God did for Israel, how could they possibly have sinned against him? He brought them out of Egypt. He defeated the kings of Moab. They should have been looking for ways to say thanks to God, not anger him. And Micah asks in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6 what we all should be asking ourselves. Lord, how can I please you? He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Should I give him a thousand rams? Should I give him ten thousand rivers of oil? And God answers this question in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now here's the shocker. Does it take enormous sacrifices or elaborate offerings to please God? Apparently not. You know, some of you are worried if if you've got just the right gifts for the folks on your Christmas shopping list. You know, your spouse and kids can be pretty picky. But apparently, God isn't so picky. God isn't hard to please. In fact, pleasing God is surprisingly simple. He makes just three requirements. Do justly. Love mercy, walk humbly. Do justly. Hey, like I tell my kids, just do the right thing every time. Do the right thing every time. And you'll always go, it'll always go well. 
Never be satisfied with the excuse, that's just the way it is. You do the right thing every time. Treat people fairly. Do it with integrity. Do justly and love mercy. Don't wait. Don't wait until people deserve love to give love. Some of you have been doing that. And and that's why you're so lonely. You've been waiting to, to give your love until people have earned that love. And therefore, you've never loved. Be gracious. Love mercy. And walk humbly. Don't make everything about you. Aren't you tired of that? People around you are. Keep a low profile. Never take bows for God. Learn to enjoy the shadows. Here's how to please God. Do rightly. Love freely. Walk humbly. Well, in chapter 7, Micah looks around and he moans his situation. He thinks he's the only righteous man alive. He says in verse 2, the faithful man has perished from the earth. Ever felt that way? Like you're the last one left who loves God. In verse 3, he speaks of people who do evil with both hands. I mean, it's not enough to sin with one hand. Everywhere he looks, there are two-handed sinners all around him. Morals are so low, Micah says in verse 5, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. And you can't even trust your own family, he says. I've discovered no wound cuts deeper or hurts more or stings longer than those inflicted by a friend or by a family member. And let me burst your bubble. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Live with someone long enough. I don't care if it's Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Eventually, he or she will let you down. Even the best among us are still fallible. None of us are ready for the pedestal. None of us are pedestal material. This is why Micah concludes in verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah had learned to put his confidence in God, not man. And this is what he expresses in verse 8. He says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. When you do stumble and do fall, don't let the enemy bury you under a mound of guilt. God gives second chances. And this is how Micah's prophecy closes. God again coming out of his place, but this time to do wonders and pardon and show mercy. As fierce as God is in judgment, he is just as lavish in his forgiveness. Now recall Micah's name. His name is his theme. Remember what it was? Who is like Yahweh, or or God, Jehovah God, the God of the Hebrews? Who is like Yahweh? Micah now has proven that God has no equal. He's noted God's sovereignty and God's justice and God's rightness. But there is one characteristic that sets God apart, and you need to see this. God has a signature trait. And this is what Micah wants you to remember most about God. 
This is the reason I get out of bed every morning. This is why I love God more and more. What sets God apart? His willingness to forgive. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Micah writes, Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in mercy, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. Can you imagine a more beautiful passage of Scripture? Now, I love these three phrases here in verse 18, passing over the transgression. Have you noticed your parents keep bringing up your sins over and over again? That bad grade you made or that crazy night you spent? You know, your spouse won't let you forget what you did. Have you noticed that? But hey, God passes over our sin. What's under his blood is out of his mind. Isn't that amazing? He does not retain his anger forever. Does he get angry at sin? Sure he does. He sees the harm that it causes us. But God's heart is too big to harbor a grudge. He's quick to bury the hatchet. You show just an inkling of repentance and God will jump to forgive. And then we're told he delights in mercy. Extending mercy doesn't come begrudgingly or reluctantly for God. Mercy isn't God's obligation, it's his delight. Showing mercy is the part of God's job that gives him the most pleasure. Passing over the transgression not retaining his anger forever. He delights in mercy. And I love verse 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Not just some sins, mind you, but all our sins. Civilized sins and barbaric sins. Blue-collar sins and white-collar sins. Accidental sins and intentional sins. Brazen sins and bashful sins. Notice the Hebrew word translated all. You know what it means? All. It means all. All our sin he has cast into the sea. And God, God hurls our sin into the deepest part of the ocean. That's where no human can explore. That's where there is no light that can expose. Corey Ten Boone added to this thought. God casts all our sin into the depths of the sea. And then he posts a no fishing sign for good measure. Once Penn State lost a big game because it was penalized for having a 12th man on the field. After the game, a reporter pressed Coach Paterno to name the guilty party who had caused the team the loss. Paterno replied, it's only a game. I have no intention of ever identifying the boy. He just made a mistake. For us now, life is more than a game. Eternity is at stake. Sin is more than a mistake. It's often deliberate and malicious. And yet, if you're in Christ, God treats you the way Coach Paterno dealt with that illegal player. Here's what occurred last week when I sinned. The devil and all hell's hecklers started calling for my blood. Hey, God! Sandy's sin. Did you see that? 
The punishment for sin is death. Make him bleed, God. Let him die a little at a time. The wages of sin is death. But that's when God answered, there's been enough bleeding. There's been enough dying. And then he turned to his right hand and he pointed to Jesus and he said, we have bled enough. This Sandy, he's a frail one. He keeps coming back over and over for more mercy. In fact, he has no chance without it. But I've chosen to forgive him. And I've put his sin behind us. And he's now mine forever. And I'm going to make him better. And God says that every time that I sin. Because I trust. I've trusted my soul to Jesus Christ. On Jewish New Year... Orthodox Jews participate in a ritual known as tashlik. The term means you will cast. And it's taken from Micah 7 verse 19. A man goes down to the ocean or to a creek or to a river. Water flows downstream so theoretically it all ends up in the ocean. The man then empties his pockets of trash And he tosses that trash into the water. And he watches the current take it away. And he is reminded that God casts all our sins into the deepest sea. That reminder is a great way for hearts that trust in Jesus to end 2009 and to start a new year. Who is like our God? Faithful to judge, but quick to forgive. Father, we thank you for your words today. And Lord, I'm praying right now for that person here this morning who needs to come to know you, who's never stepped over the line, who's never crossed over and made a commitment of their life to Jesus. They've chosen darkness because they haven't chosen you. And their world will continue to be full of darkness and pain and despair until they choose you. And so I pray this morning they would make that choice. You are the God who can break open And I pray that you'll break open their pride and their stubbornness and their sinfulness. And and that you'll give them, they will give you, Lord, that inkling of repentance that you're waiting for. For you are quick to forgive. For you delight in mercy. For you promise to cast all our sin into the deepest ocean. So I pray that someone here this morning would leave this room with their sins forgiven and their heart at peace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.